Well, I'm all revved up from worship, uh, ready to go. I hope you're ready to listen. I don't know, it uh, helps me to go because I'm up here moving around. I don't know how you're going to sit in your chair after that and just try to listen. Uh, but that's your problem, not mine. So uh, I'll just do what I'm supposed to do. I uh, just want to challenge some of you and remind some of you. I want to remind, faithfulness is going to be a theme for this service today. I want to remind you that those of you that are consistent and attend our prayer meeting, that that's tonight at five. But I also want to challenge those of you that have never come to come and be part of our prayer as we pray over our church and over our people. Also a reminder that at the end of the month, we are having our 24 hours of prayer. And I wanna remind those of you that are faithful to sign up for that, some of you to lead. And for some of you, this would be a great challenge to choose an hour or maybe even two at different times and pray. First of all, you'll be shocked how quickly an hour will go, um, most of the time. And, uh, but you'll survive even if it's slow, but it also will connect you into the ministry of prayer and help you as you begin to grow in your discipline. So this is just another opportunity. We want to commit our church to the Lord. We believe that without him, we can do nothing. So we need to start our year by committing to prayer. And so I want to ask you to consider being part of that. It's all online, so you can do it from wherever you want as long as you have internet connection. So uh, Shayla Visser leads, uh, she leads uh, Alpha. And um, I was on a meeting with, um, it was kind of a gathering and uh, I was one of many. And Shayla gave uh, a challenge to those of us that were on that meeting that uh, why don't you, it was just when COVID was starting, why don't you challenge uh, um, I'm, I want to challenge you. I'm going to ask you, go ahead and ask people. People, just pray and then ask people to go through Alpha with you. You'll be shocked at the response. And so I took her challenge and uh, I asked seven people and six of them said yes. And so I didn't do one with those six. I did various ones. And uh, it was very simple. I just pressed play. We would watch online. Um, I'd press play. It would play the session. Each session's about 25 minutes. Done so well. And then I would ask a penetrating question. What did you think? <laughs> what stood out to you? Just that. That's all I would ask. And then we would talk about what that person, what was impressed on theirs. And so we were, we had with... One individual, we were going through it, and uh, I, I, we were, the session was on the Word of God, the Bible, and how important it is. And I asked, oh, what did you think? And his response to me was, I don't really believe the Bible. And he said, I think, I think Jesus was a great person, but I think the Bible was written after Jesus, um, at least the New Testament part of it was, and uh, they just kind of added to the story. So, you know, Jesus, like, maybe saved Peter from drowning, and then the story became he walked on water. But that's not really what happened. And uh, Jesus shared his food with people. He was so generous, but they, you know, his followers over time exaggerated the story, and next thing you know, he fed 5,000. And uh, that, I don't believe that that's... Uh, that's the way it happened. I think the Bible exaggerates it. And so I don't really believe the Bible and therefore I can't really believe much in Jesus. And it struck me 
that uh, several things struck me, but one thing that struck me is whatever gets your attention sets your direction. So wherever you choose to focus, whatever you choose to believe on in will determine your direction. You get to choose what you believe, but you don't get to choose the direction that it leads you. Whatever gets your attention sets your direction. So Peter's writing this book, 2 Peter, it's, I say a book, it's one of the books of the Bible, but it's really a letter, and it's to those who are followers of Christ, and he knows he's going to die soon, and so he's writing to them and saying, here are some things that, so you don't leave your faith, you don't wander away, I want you to remember some key things, hence the name of the series, remember these things. And he's going to talk about specific things, foundational things that the followers of Christ need to remember so that they don't wander from the faith. And we're going to pick up one of those in the first chapter today, uh, first chapter, uh, first Peter chapter one, right at the very end of the chapter. And Peter writes to them, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, he starts here and he wants to know, I want you to know that the stories that I've been preaching, the things that I've been telling you and others have been telling you are not myths. It's funny, 2,000 years ago, he was dealing with the same thing I was dealing with after Alpha. We didn't make these stories up. They're telling the truth. You need to know that what we have been preaching to you is absolutely true. And he gives two reasons why we should believe him. The first thing he says is because we have been eyewitnesses of this majesty. He, meaning Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father. When the voice came from heaven from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were there with him on the sacred mount. So there's twice the voice of God from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, whom I'm, with whom I'm well pleased. One was at his baptism, one was on the Mount Transfiguration. Peter's clearly referring to the Mount of Transfiguration, where the story tells us that he, James, and John went with Jesus up to the Mount and then heard God say this to Jesus, because he refers to the Mount. Now, the first thing Peter says, here's how you know I'm telling the truth, is that I saw this, I heard it, I'm an eyewitness. Now, Peter's statement has three potential options. One, Peter's lying. He didn't really see it. He didn't really hear it. He's just making it up. Or two, Peter's deceived. Or three, he's telling the truth. There are options. Now, let's deal with the first one. Why do people lie? Why did President Bush say, we are certain there are nuclear weapons uh, in Iraq under Saddam Hussein? And they never ever found any. Why would he say we are, why would he lie? Why would Britney Spears in the beginning years of her, her I was going to say ministry, her, uh, uh, I don't know, a career, yeah. Uh, why would she say I'm a virgin when she wasn't? Why would she lie? Why does anybody lie? 
We lie because by lying we get power, influence. We gain something, we get out of trouble. But we lie because it's an advantage to us. It gets us something we want. And the only way we think we can get it is to lie. That's why people lie. So they can get something they want. So it is possible Peter's lying. Except this. Peter says, I'm going to die soon, and he does. And yet he never recants his story, though he is killed, crucified, upside down. Because of his stories, because of his preaching, because of his belief in Jesus. And yet he never recants that belief. He dies claiming Jesus is who he's always said Jesus was. Now, the one thing we know about liars is they'll lie to get their advantage. But when lying no longer becomes an advantage, they stop lying. And nobody dies for what they know is a lie. If they've been lying, they'll come good. No, I was just lying. In fact, it would have been to his advantage to say, oh, I'm lying. Because then they could use Peter, the leader of the church, to say, yes, see, the leader says this is all bunk. And but Peter dies. Now, can you believe somebody who dies for what they say to be true? Well, It sure is a convincing proof if somebody's willing to die for what they say is true. Because that's just not human nature to die for what we know is a lie. Now you could say, well, he was deceived. Well, that's true. He could have been deceived, except he says in the text, and we know through the testimony of others, that he saw these things. He heard these things. This isn't something he heard from somebody else and then he was deceived because they were lying to him. This is something he saw firsthand. This is something that he knows to be true because he saw it and he heard it. So if it isn't true, then we go back to point number one. He must have been lying. But then do people die for what they know is a lie? The other option is, well, it is true. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. You can trust that Jesus is the Messiah because I'm going to stake my life on it. Everything I'm telling you, I will die for. Now, it's interesting what he says about Jesus. There's some interesting Old Testament references of what he said. He goes, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, this isn't some cleverly devised story. This is the truth. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. So, so if you remember the story of Peter, James, and John up in the mountain with Jesus, Moses, Elijah show up, Moses and Elijah show up. Jesus is so dazzling bright. His clothes are transfigured. It's brighter than the sun. That's that's the expression Peter uses to explain how, how glorious he is. And then Peter says, well, yeah, we got to set up three tents. And then uh, it all disappears and there's a cloud. And then they hear that voice. 
Moses and Elijah are taken away. Jesus is left, and the voice says, this is my son. Now, son can be used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It can mean son or sons of God. It can mean son or sons of Israel. It can be son of Joseph or son of Mary or, or you know, the term of son or you know, the child of so-and-so. It can, it can mean uh, son of David. It can be used that way. So which one is it? Now, all those uses apply to Jesus. But I think Peter gives us a hint, or rather the father gives us a hint, when he says, this is my son whom I love. That term in Hebrew is Jedidiah. And if you recognize that, that is one of the names given to Solomon's son of David. It's not really a name. It's a phrase that means the beloved one or the one I love. And so it would appear when the father's speaking, he's, this is my son. This is the son of David that you've been waiting for, the beloved one that I have testified and prophesied about. And he is, with him I am well pleased. What do you mean by that? In the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, if, uh, if a man married a woman and found out she was not a virgin, then it was said he was not pleased with her, meaning she wasn't who she said she was, and so he could put her away. And so there's the idea that comes up here is that the father's saying, not I'm pleased, I am well pleased. He meets all the requirements necessary to be the savior, the son of David, the Messiah. This is a statement by Peter, which he will die for to say, the one the world has been waiting for, it's Jesus. There's no other. So the question becomes, well, why would you turn and look for another? If this is the one, the Father says, I've chosen, I've prepared, he is well-pleasing to me, he's the one I love, he's the one I've chosen, here's the one you've been waiting for. And by the way, there are a lot of different philosophies in this world that tell us that you can come to God and you can, you can get to heaven, you can come to God, you can be made right with God, whatever you wanna say, through all kinds of different means. And yet this is a reminder there's only one means to find forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father and that's through Jesus. Because he's the only one that was chosen, the only one that was met all the requirements. And Peter's gonna go into that. And the second thing, the second reason we can believe what he's saying. First, he dies for what he says about Jesus and never recants. Nobody dies for something they know is a lie. The second thing he says is, we also, verse 19, have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Now, why would a prophetic message be completely reliable? Well, when he refers to prophetic message, he's referring to the Old Testament and all the prophecies about Jesus. There are over 300 prophecies about what the Messiah will be like when he comes. And Jesus meets all of them. Now, there's two things to consider here. How in the world could writers four, six, 800 years before Jesus ever come give details to Jesus' life? How is that possible that somebody can see hundreds of years into the future and accurately write out details? How is that possible? Well, it's only possible one way. Only God who exists 
the only one who exists outside of time, who is in the past, present, and future simultaneously, can say, this is what will happen. This is what he will be like. It must come from God. There's no other explanation for the supernatural ability of men from, from the Old Testament predicting details about the life of Jesus. And then you might say, some would say, yeah, but Jesus just arranged the circumstances to fulfill the prophecies. After all, the prophecies are kind of general, and some of them are general. They're kind of general, so anybody could just kind of rearrange the circumstances and make it look like they fulfill the prophecy. And I would say, okay, that is a fair point. Now, let's look at some interesting prophecies. Do we have them on the, scre- <coughs> on the screen here? So he would be a... These are all different prophecies from the Old Testament. He would be a descendant of Abraham and David. Okay, I want to know... Who before they're born has the ability to choose what family they're going to be in? Because that's really cool. He would be declared beloved son. I'd like to know how Jesus arranged for God to speak out of a cloud twice that he was the beloved son. Because that's really cool. He, He would rise from the dead. Huh. Well, he's a mastermind if he can make his circumstances all fit around rising from the dead. He would be betrayed by a close friend. How would they know that? He would have a ministry of miracles. Not only is it impossible to predict that, but then to pull it off. How do you go around having a ministry of miracles, which Jesus is well known to have done, it's recorded in the scriptures. How do you, <laughs> I want to pretend I'm the Messiah. No, I just have to go out and do miracles. Well, that sounds easy. He's buried in a rich man's, how do you determine where you're going to be buried before you die? Oh, well, that's easy, Ed, you choose the plot. Okay, I'll give that to you. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. How did they know that Judas would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? How did they know it would happen? And how did Jesus arrange that? Look, you give him 30 pieces of silver. Judas, you betray me, and then you guys can put me to death. We got that? That sounds all okay? That, that sounds like a person fairly committed to their cause. Now, here's the ones, like, as if these weren't obvious enough. Here's these ones. He would be pierced. He's, he's on a cross in crucifixion. In fact, Psalm 22 describes his death. It was written by David a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And it describes in detail how he would die. And here's one of the phrases. He would be How did David a thousand years know that he would be, the Messiah would be pierced? And then did Jesus, you're telling me Jesus on the cross as he's dying say, quick, hurry up and pierce me so I can be the Messiah. He would be born, how did he arrange to be born in Bethlehem? And how did he arrange to be born of a virgin? I mean, it's impossible to say Jesus manipulated the circumstances because he was trying to deceive people into the fact he was the Messiah. The only reasonable conclusion is the supernatural spirit of God gave 
information to writers in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it happened. And Jesus, the one beloved of the Father, was the fulfillment of all those things that God had said about him when he came. Now Peter says, it's interesting what Peter says next. He said, you will do well to pay attention. That's why I say, well, get your attention, get your direction. You would do well to pay attention to what I'm telling you as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, I, I want to just probe those for a little bit because there's some Old Testament uh, interesting uh, insights in that. But I just want to finish off the thought that it's the supernatural work of God that gave those writers hundreds of years before uh, the information that they were able to put in the text and then came true, the prophecies. For prophecy, says Peter, never had its origin in human will. It, people didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write some prophecy. But prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is an interesting, this is another one of those divine and human mixes where we can't really see inside. So we don't know really how it worked. And so one of the divine human mixes is Jesus, God, and man. And how did that work? That's kind of complicated. It's a mystery, says Paul. And here's the next one. The Bible written by humans but carried along by God. How did that work on there? How did, did they even know when they were writing prophecy? I think sometimes, but not always. Here's the third one. Humans like you and me who put our faith in Jesus indwelt by the Holy Spirit within. How does that work as we pray and seek God and understand Christ? The Holy Spirit gains more of us, empowers us to do his will. Not our will, his will. These are mysteries of our faith. But Peter says it might be mysterious how it works, but it isn't a secret that that's how it works. Only God could accomplish that. And all of it was to point us to the fact that we ought to pay attention to this Jesus as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars risen in your hearts. Now, some interesting things here. First of all, uh, Peter is quoting, has to be quoting 2 Samuel chapter 23 because these are the almost exact phrases right out of them and two of them together. The light dawning and, and, and the light shining in darkness in the dawn. And these are David's last words where he writes, these are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. Now, David, you remember, was king of Israel. It was to him that God promised the Messiah would come. And David spent his life and his fortune directing people to the coming promised son that would come out of his line. And he writes, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. Here's this you know, reference Peter referred to. The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass to the earth. He says, when one rules, so he, obviously as he's dying, he's thinking of the promise of the 
son who would rule that God gave him. And he said, when one is ruling in righteousness and in fear and love for God, he's like light in the darkness. He is like the dawn that comes and chases away the darkness. So that goodness and righteousness and holiness will prevail under his reign. Peter quotes that idea right from this verse about Jesus. The one who was chosen by the Father, loved by the Father, accepted by the Father, well-pleasing to the Father, is the light that comes in the darkness, bringing truth and salvation. And he is the day that will dawn and chase away all evil and corruption and darkness. That is happening now as the church goes out and shares the name of Jesus, but it will happen with power when he returns to this earth. It's happening now, but will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. Now, there's one other phrase he uses to refer to this light, this darkness. The morning star risen in your hearts. Well, what is the morning star? What does that refer to? Well, in the Old Testament, ancients used stars to refer to divine spiritual beings. So in Job, the stars sang while, God, while they were witnessing God creating the universe. Well, clearly it wasn't mankind because we weren't around while God was created. And it makes sense, really, because when you think about it, if you were going to take a metaphor, use something as a metaphor of divine spiritual beings, whenever we think of divine, we, we think upward. And so up in, the star, up in the sky are the stars. They're shining, they're bright, they're distance, they're up, which was always in the mindset of the ancients, that the, the realm of the God was always up, the realm of death was always down. We still have those same, that same thinking today. And that these stars were above the earth, more powerful. And so they, they were a great figure of speech to use when referring to supernatural beings. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 14, which is a fabulous chapter, uh, it's about the fall of Satan. I can only read a few verses. I'm going to pick it up this idea of the star. What does this morning star refer to? How you have fallen from heaven. So whoever this is, this being has fallen from heaven. And then he tells them, Isaiah names him. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Now this is where it might get a little confusing because Peter just used the idea of dawn and morning star to refer to Jesus. And now Isaiah, 600 years before Peter, says this refers to the one who has fallen from heaven. You've been cast down to the earth. <laughs> if this is indeed, and I believe it is, talking about Satan, not only does he fall from heaven, where does he land? in your yard. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, this is why, I will ascend to the heavens. Well, he already was in the heavens. Clearly, 
Ascending meant I'm going to the top of the heavens and all those that, he's not saying I'm going as far as I can in the atmosphere. Heavens were the place of the gods and I will ascend over them all, including Yahweh. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Now, again, now there's that metaphor. The stars of God are the divine beings that are in the supernatural realm. And Satan says, who is the morning star? Now, the morning star is the brightest of all stars. It may, may actually refer to Venus, the planet, um, but it was the star that when night was out, all the stars, you see them at night, but when morning begins to dawn and the light comes in and fills the sky, it blots out the stars except for the brightest of bright and the final star to be seen before full daylight comes on, the brightest one is called the morning star, the one that is the brightest and the boldest and the greatest of all the stars. And so that's why Satan is called the morning star, the son of the dawn, because when he was created, he was created as the most powerful of all the divine beings. But pride brought him low. He was judged by God and cast down to the earth because he said, I'm going to ascend to the heavens. I'm going to raise my throne above the stars, all the the uh, divine beings in the supernatural realm. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. The assembly is, the refer is, the ref is referring to the assembly of these divine beings that are there. I'm going to be above them. They are going to, I'm going to rule over them. And then he, uh, my throne will be on Mount Zaphon. Uh, 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 what is Mount Zaphon? Mount Zaphon means the, the mountain in the north and the mountain in the north in Canaanite uh, religious uh, terminology was where Baal would rule over the other gods. And Isaiah takes that thinking and that, that mindset that fully infiltrated the Jews and many of the Jews had gone over to worship Baal and reading of the Old Testament, you see that. And he says, it's not Baal that rules on the mount, the high mount. It's God who rules on the high mount. Guess where Mount Zaphon is? Where Peter, James, and John stood with Jesus and he was declared to be the son, the beloved one, the one who is well pleased. It's the same mountain. Boy, what a coincidence. Really? Peter is picking up I'll send to the tops of the clouds, says Satan. That, again, the clouds are metaphors. Who rides on the clouds? In the Old Testament. Well, in Canaanite lore, Baal did. In Hebrew lore, God rode the clouds, which is interesting why Jesus says, I will come on the clouds. It's a reference in the Old Testament to the fact that he is God. And I'll make myself like the Most High. So now if you're sitting here, you've heard me say that star is a metaphor for supernatural beings. Isaiah here calls this fallen one, who I believe to be Satan, as the morning star. 
The problem is, I thought Jesus was the morning star. In fact, Peter calls him that. And then in um, uh, the Revelation, I've lost it. Revelation is a uh, verse, I can't, yeah, there we go. I, Jesus, so Jesus is speaking, have sent my angel to you. Uh, this testimony for the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David. I'm the son of David, the Messiah promised to him. And I am the what? Bright and morning star. Well, how can Satan be the morning star and Jesus be the morning star? This is where perhaps our church theology kind of isn't that strong. But in the time of Peter, the Jews believed that when Satan fell to the earth and deceived Adam and Eve, that he took, he usurped the authority God gave to Adam and Eve over this world and now became the ruler and the prince and the God of this world, all terms given to him in the Bible. So he is the greatest of all the spiritual beings ruling this earth, except for, of course, God. When Jesus goes to the cross, we are told that he destroys, by dying on the cross in our place for our sin, Jesus destroys death, so it no longer has a hold on us. Now this life that we live here now, this body, this goes, by the way, but we don't. We go into a new life, a, a life that is great, a kind of life that is greater than the one we live now with brand new bodies. It's unbelievable. He destroys death. He destroys sin, which is what, what leads us into separation from God. And he destroys the works of the devil. Now, if you remember, that's what we're told in the New Testament. If you remember in Genesis, when God curses the serpent, he said, a seed of Eve is going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush. Now, head is always a symbol, in the in, in, or mostly always a symbol, of authority and power. And so when the seed of Eve, the Messiah at the cross, crushes the head of Satan, he crushes his authority and his hold over this world. And that's why Jesus, after he's resurrected, says, all authority has been given to me. I Hook it back. And he's called the son of Adam. The, he, what God gave man in Genesis and Satan took away, I have now recovered and now all authority is mine. I am now the bright morning star. As, as a conquering king takes the crown off the deposed king that he's conquered and puts it on his own head. So Jesus takes the term bright and morning star and takes it off Satan. You are no longer in control. And he puts it on his own head. This is who the prophecies were all about. This is the one that Peter's saying, be careful, remember these things, because without Jesus, you have nothing. Remember this, who Jesus is. I will die to prove that what I'm saying to you is truth. Because nobody dies for a lie, willingly dies for a lie, knowing it's a lie. But even more powerful, the supernatural prediction hundreds of years before that Jesus completely fulfilled 
and his death and resurrection, his death on the cross and his resurrection where he destroyed the works of the devil. He is the one who is God's promised Messiah. He is the one who gives life when you put your faith in him. He is the one that deals with your sin. He is the one that will correct this world. This is who you came to worship today. He is no longer a baby in a manger. He's no longer a man walking this world. He was far more than a great teacher. He was far more than a miracle worker, though he was both of those. He is the chosen one of God, predicted from the beginning of time and referred to over the courses of the Old Testament, coming to die on the cross where he conquered all evil and conquered the evil one and took back from him everything he stole from mankind and put the throne or the crown on his head and he sits and will rule over this earth. He is getting the message out through his church. Those of you that choose to be followers of Jesus, our mission is simple. Tell people about Jesus because when he returns, everything is going to be changed, turned upside down and main right, and we're going to learn about that further on in the book of 2 Peter. Now, Peter says, pay attention because what gets your attention sets your direction. When um, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham, Charles Templeton came to Christ in 1936 and became an evangelist for Youth for Christ. He and Billy Graham teamed up together. About three, four years later, in the 40s, Templeton began to go to Princeton, and there he encountered uh, teaching that the Bible wasn't reliable. It turned him away from his faith. In fact, his greatest work was farewell to God, a total renunciation of the Christian faith. He was an evangelist with Billy Graham. Of course, you know Billy Graham. And the tens of millions he witnessed to of Christ and the millions he led to Christ. They were in the middle of that changing over, that transition. Uh, Templeton said, how can you ignore all these arguments against the Bible? It can't be the word of God. And Billy Graham said, all I know is this, much brighter men than me have argued about this, these issues, and I have neither the time nor the intellect to be able to go through all the arguments. But I know this, when I preach, the Bible says, the word of God, Jesus the Lord, there is a power in my preaching that I can't explain. What got Charles Templeton's attention was the doubts, and he pursued them, letting go of the Bible. What got Billy Graham's attention was the Bible, and he left the doubts, knowing they were there, he left the doubts to others to fight through and put his faith in what he knew to be true. Yeah, I can't explain everything, but I know that the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus is the one chosen, and that's what I'm going to focus on. And what gets your attention sets your direction. And it's the same for you and me. Of course you're going to have doubts. Of course people are going to tell you the Bible isn't true. We're in a spiritual war. But the Bible gives enough evidence for what it is and who wrote it that you can either believe that 
or you can believe the things that cause doubts. You choose, and what gets your attention sets your direction. Father, today I pray that the assurance that Peter gives us of the Word of God and its supernatural content and power, predicting things hundreds of years ahead of before and having them fulfilled in Christ. How could that ever happen? Peter died believing this to be true, that what he saw and what he heard was what he saw and what he heard, and he was willing to die for it. And so help us to pay attention and to remember the truth that Peter has given us so that we don't wander away from the faith. I pray this in your name. Amen.